Hi, this is Andy Brewer with the Northwest AHEC Healthcare Insights Podcast. In this episode, I talked to Gail S. Marion, PhD. She's a professor in family medicine at Wake Forest School of Medicine, got her PA degree at Bowman Gray School of Medicine in 1980, and she served as the first female PA in the Department of Family Medicine. She shared with me her story growing up, picking tobacco from the age of four in Surrey County, North Carolina. She had her first of two children at age 19 and lost her husband, a Vietnam veteran, to suicide. I started our episode by asking her how her past affected her resiliency. Well, certainly when you work from dawn to dusk six days a week from the time you're four until you go away to college when you're 18 and you miss a lot of school in the spring and the fall related to the crops, it's highly motivating. You decide early on that this is not what you want for your life and any children you might have. So it, it was quite motivating. And because I did learn to work hard at an early age and understand how to work efficiently and work as a part of a team. I think those experiences have served me well in that way. I don't recommend to anyone that you skip a lot of the things that you should be doing in childhood, like play and learning to do other fun things like swimming and other kind of things. But, mm. but I do think that we... Um, if we're going to be resilient, we do learn to make the best of the experiences that we've had. And I have been incredibly blessed to be able to take those experiences and keep them with me throughout my teaching, my patient care, my research, and um, working with the folks at Southside, the federally qualified health clinic that we also help take care of. Um, Those experiences are actually never too far away from me. And I think I said to you, Early on in my career, I was just so busy working and raising my kids, and I was a single mom. Um, my husband committed suicide after Vietnam, and um, it was a it was it was a rough rough go. And all of those things have informed how I help learners listen to patient stories. If you don't know a patient's story, it's very hard to take good care of them especially in a primary care setting. You might do okay in an emergency department with an in-and-out visit, but if you're going to provide long-term care for a person, you really need to understand who they are, where they're coming from, what's working, what's not working, and you need to hear it in their own words. So I think that business that I was telling you about learning all about patient-centered communications, all the evidence for how to do that, learn had a consultant from um, Johnson City, uh, East Tennessee State University, Forrest Lang, who was one of my mentors. And that became my grounding for how to get all these people trained to actually listen to people's stories and learn how to run a good visit so that patients got what they needed and you, they didn't get lost in the muck of when patients couldn't, <laughs> couldn't control themselves. You learn how to direct the visit on the patient's behalf so that you get the most out of the visit. So it's it has late in life, all of that has The early life has certainly informed my career much more than I really thought it had when I, in that first 10 or 15 years, when I was so busy, I guess I didn't have time to think Mm -hmm. (laughs) about these things. Well, you said the word resilience, and I think that's so important for people to experience and to go through adversity to become stronger. You know, the old adage, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think that in healthcare and medicine, that's important too, so that... 
you know, if you've got some lived experience that has really challenged you and you've grown from it and, and, and moved on and gotten stronger, um, that would certainly allow you to understand where uh, people are coming from, from a human standpoint. And, and you know, I, I asked you earlier before we went on on the air that uh, is patient-centered communication what we used to call bedside manner. And, and I think that having that ability to be authentic, to communicate with the, the patients and understand their plight, no matter what their complaint is, is so important. And, and I just, you know, if you could share some of the ways that, that you train that. And, you, you know, you, you also shared that today's medical student is a lot better at this and a lot has it more comprehensive from their um, background. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about that? About the patient-centered communication model? Yeah, yeah sure, and how sure. you teach that yes. and, the, and the methodologies yes, sure. and stuff like that. So I was fortunate in my career in the early 90s to – um, develop a relationship with Dr. Forrest Lang at East Tennessee State University. And he and his team had developed some of the early research model, for so both the clinical model and the research model for that form of communication. And he was one of the kindest, loveliest human beings you will ever meet. And he came over to our department every time I asked him to come and I trained every person in our faculty I trained every resident I trained every student who came through I trained people at the PA department and every time I asked him to come he came and worked with me to help me do a really good job on the this model itself the other thing that he had developed is called the common ground communication rating form and that he had trained some raters to review standardized patient encounters, and they had learned to be 90% reliable to his own rating of the encounter, the, the performance of any learner's encounter. And so he helped me train eight raters, and I used those raters over the uh, three different grants, two with the PA department, one with the medic, one, one with our residents and family medicine, the medical students and family medicine. And we reviewed about 12,000 spas and looked at the benefit to how the students, learners basically, started their performance and what kind of encounters they had versus after we gave them the curriculum. And published that and determined that we really could make a significant difference in how everybody could improve their skills by learning how to use this model. And the model is just, it's a very basic model, but learning how to use it does take some experience. It obviously starts off with just very basic rapport building. How do you do that? You want to get good juice out of it. So what's gone on in your life since the last visit, good way to develop rapport because then you hear who's died, who's in jail, who's been in the hospital, so you know how to behave yourself just to, at, at the top of the visit. Then you set an agenda, and if you don't set an agenda, then your patient will do it, and you set it with them, but you do that at the top of the visit because, number one, you never have enough time to see people in primary care to take care of all the problems. So you have to figure out at the top of the visit how to prioritize what you're going to talk about, and you and your patient need to agree with that. So that means you've pre-charted. And that means that you look at their vital signs when you walk in the room and it, and you take into account what they told you about what's happened since the last visit. And once you've done that, then you know how to set an agenda. And that becomes really important because 
a lot of people don't know how to organize their thoughts when they're in our office, and it doesn't does them a disservice if we don't know how to structure that visit to help them get the biggest bang for their buck out mm-hmm. of the time with us. So I tell them every minute's important. So if people get lost, they're going around the bend a little bit. If you've set that agenda, you can say, uh, let me make sure I got the story straight, summarize what they just told you, ask your couple more questions and say, now let's go on to the next thing that we agreed to talk about. You can bring them back and you can keep doing that in a way that helps them get their needs met much better than a lot of people can do on their own. There's mm-hmm. some really organized people who come in and those skills become much less important. Mm-hmm. But a lot of folks who are depressed, they're ailing, they're, perhaps their literacy is literacy level is low. There's a lot of reasons why people don't always know how to just get down to business and get a good experience out of the visit. So we set the agenda and then we know how to redirect them and then we know how to use good organizing directives and summaries to help them keep telling their story in a way that's moving forward mm-hmm. as well as getting the pieces that we need. And then we're very attentive to their our active listening skills. I heard you say that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Normalizing feelings, addressing feelings. If somebody says, I'm, I'm I need a CAT scan. My, I've got this terrible headache, and my brother or my uncle or my cousin died of a brain tumor. I'm afraid I have a brain tumor. Certainly, you want to normalize that concern be, before you even start to talk about. Well, tell me about the headache. Yeah, so they they can be activated, or they can be uh, evasive, or right. they cannot just just maybe not understand right. Right. what it is. Right. So the effective communication is is so important, especially in, in is time crunched right. as a as a visit is so yeah so those are the first five skills and that's what gets you to your physical exam and then when you have done the history and the physical then you need to do your wrap-up and that also has really intentional elements with it you summarize what you talked about you explain your impressions you write them down simply with bullets and phrases you make sure that you use language the patient can understand you ask them to say you say, to make sure I've been clear, can you summarize for me what the plan is? You have a document in their hand. And then you um, ask them if it's feasible to get the medicine or the imaging or the PT or whatever it is they need. And then you make sure that you have good follow-up established. So there's very individual specific elements for what you do in each one of those skills, each one of those six uh, skills of the common ground communication that makes this work. And it lets the students see there is a path here. It has individual markers on it. There's a, a way to do this. Mm-hmm. It's not like throwing me in the room and just, you know, kind of seeing what sticks. Yeah. Kind of thing, you know, which kind of some people have in the past kind of felt like that was what it was about. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's setting the outcome before you go in. The intention mm-hmm. is to this person needs help. I need to get them help. How is the best way to have that be successful for both of right, us? Right. I had a guest here, Thomas Reed, a friend of mine who's, you know, he does these seminars on, he calls it task and it's a tool set for creating win-win outcomes mm-hmm. for every mm-hmm. communication mm-hmm. interaction. Yeah. So I can see this how, example, yeah. yeah, and how important that is in healthcare setting when time is just such a constraint. I mean, it'd be great to have eight hours with each patient. We really wanted to dig down and find the right solution, but to have that 
pre-programmed methodology, I think. I think good. And it becomes a habit. You know, if you use those skills over and over again, you can have a, be having a bad day. You cannot sleep well the night before. You can have a lot on your mind, but you can take your three deep cleansing breaths before you walk in the room, before you put your hand on the doorknob, and you know how to behave in that room. You have a process for success, even though you may not feel 100% in a given day. And gosh, I would love to have known that when I first started practicing. I felt so lost, you know, that specific process when I was first practicing, which is why I ended up getting the PhD in educational leadership and and cultural affairs, because I just didn't feel like I had all the tools I needed. And mm-hmm. then I kind of found Dr. Lang at the same time. So it, it, I started to feel much more capable and like I wasn't, I was no longer a fraud, you know, <laughs> because I really felt like I had the tools I needed and yeah. I had the support from somebody who I uh, respected greatly, uh, who mentored me until he, he said, you know, you don't need me anymore. Mm-hmm. And I did, but. He was very kind <laughs> to say that at some point. He said, you don't need me anymore. <laughs> well, did you ever have a like an aha moment with a, with a patient or anything where you were like, wow, that that just made the, all the difference? You mean in terms of using those skills? Yeah. Oh, well, I will tell you, yes. I mean, not just did I ever. That happens every week. Mm-hmm. It You do not know what you're going to hear when you say what's gone on with you since the last visit. Mm-hmm. When that's your patient and you trying to figure out, you know what's in the chart and you know what their vital signs are and you know they're sitting in a room and they're not, you know, falling out of their chair, but you do not know what their lived experience has been since the last time you saw them and you don't know what you're going to hear. And I have heard, uh, my husband died yesterday. I'm going to the funeral home as soon as I leave this appointment to get my, his, you know, get the casket picked out and everything. I have heard, like I said, my husband's in jail. My son's in jail. My son got a, you know, the, the gamut. You run the gamut because mm-hmm. people have lives that are all over the map, good and bad and ugly. And you don't know until you ask that question. Yeah, I, I guess the, the challenge also is to establish the authenticity and the trust so that you can get honest answers, especially in things that have stigma attached to it, like opioid use mm-hmm. disorder mm-hmm. or any type of behavioral health issue. Yeah, the whole non-judgmental way of asking people what's going on, what's what the struggle is about. If you don't have the capacity to be curious and uh, and ask questions that you know you need to know the answers to without the patient ex- um, experiencing judgmental behavior in the room, yeah, they folks will shut down. And I've heard that around the issues of obesity I've heard I've heard horrible stories patients have told me who are large and they come to see me and they say, well, when are you going to start yelling at me? Like, what are you talking about <laughs> at the end of the visit? I mean, it's just sad. You know, mm. they said every person I've ever seen has started yelling at me at the end of the visit. Now, whether that's true or not, that's what they're carrying around with them. And that's that's really sad that the if we are not in the business of sitting in the judgment See, that's what the attorneys and judges downtown do. We're in the business of helping people get through their lives as best we can, as best they can, and providing some tools and some resources for them, tailoring them to different times of their life. You know, the things I need right now 
as a patient, for example, a real different than the things I needed 15 or 20 years ago, and certainly 30 years ago when I was still raising small children. Well, I, th- I guess, you know, back in the day, I guess we, we used to think tough love was the, you know, I'm just going to berate you until you'll finally come around and realize and you'll change your lifestyle. But as we know, the evidence clearly doesn't point in that direction. Clearly doesn't. I mean, I, I grew up in a time where I knew physicians who would not take patients or keep patients unless they stopped smoking. They said, if you're not going to help yourself, then I, I can't do anything for you. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't do surgery on people who needed surgery because they wouldn't stop smoking. And I, I know that's really important. But at any rate, how you get there, you don't stop smoking. Cold turkey still is the most effective way to stop smoking and stay stopped. But you have to have that moment. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen usually the first time someone talks with you about stopping smoking mm-hmm. it usually is the fifth time or the sixth time or the seventh time that's the that's the average it's five to seven times that people try before mm-hmm. they stop the last time we have programs at north SAHEC about motivational interviewing and and techniques to get mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. to modify mm-hmm. their behaviors you know you mentioned the tool set for communication where does that fit in mi motivational interviewing is just a I would say it's an expansion of two or three of the tools of the Common Ground Communication. Um, Dr. Lang also was developing a lot of MI uh, training for his residents and students um, around the time I was working with him. And that literature isn't quite as far along as that's what I just shared with you. But motivational interviewing definitely for behavior change is at the heart of what people do in family medicine. Now, we do take care of acute problems, but we do a lot of chronic disease management, and that requires a lot of, it can require from patients, if they decide to make changes, it requires a lot of uh, readiness to change that we have to assess. If we sit down with a patient and tell them that they need to do these four things and basically turn their lives upside down, Mm -hmm. that is ridiculous. Nobody makes four changes at once. It's hard enough to make one. And if we don't ask them which one they think they might be ready to start working on, that's also ridiculous. Like yeah. We are just wasting our time and their time. You know, we've got to figure out where people are at the end of the visit when we start doing that kind of talk, just like we do at the beginning. Where are you and what's what do you think you're ready to do? Mm-hmm. And can we make that one goal? And that's one of the things I work with the students on a lot is they say, oh, this patient needs to lose weight and they need to stop smoking and they need to, um, they need to stop taking the NSAIDs because their blood pressure is out of control and they need, you know, like four things. I'm going, yep, that's true. They need to do all those things. But how many do you think they'll do walking out of here? And, oh, yeah, right. I mean, the mm-hmm. light bulb goes on because you want to help people. You want them to have better lives, healthier lives, long lives. And, it's hard not to just jump in there and start telling them all the things you know that would make their yeah. health better, you know? yeah. but you can't. Yeah, I mean, and that that creates that power dynamic too. When and you 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 mentioned or you described how the handoff process goes in in the study mm-hmm. or the grants mm-hmm. that you're part of, and I think that helps put that humanity back mm-hmm. into it, and it mm-hmm. also defangs that power dynamic differential, right. especially to to people who are health illiterate, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know as a social determinant, that's one of the most profound factors in you know there's multifactorial but the the health literacy is a big one and, and especially now 
with access to information that we have, a lot of misinformation comes in yeah, as well. It's not and knowledge. It's not knowledge. <laughs> it's, it's just information, information yeah. and it's how you distill it. And if you're disadvantaged, I, I guess, intellectually, let's say, then then you might have a lot of mixed messages. And so to come at it from that more humanist approach right. and, and meet them and say, I see you as right, a human. Right, right. And, and that, that's so important for right. that patient to right. understand, look, yes. this person actually cares about right. me. Exactly. They're not going to berate me because no, of my size. No. no, if they're like not sleeping at night and they're having TV on all night and they're watching the shopping channel and they're having all these thing, commercials that say this is, this is going to turn your life around. When you, if you don't find that stuff out and people have ordered all these supplements or herbs or whatever and you don't understand why their blood pressure's up or you don't understand why, you know, whatever's going on, if you haven't found that out in a way that doesn't make people feel badly, I constantly remind patients and students, we swim around in this really different world right now of, you know, statins are deadly and herbs are good and the vitamin E that you're taking that you're not telling your healthcare provider about won't really cause you to bleed out during your surgery because you don't know that because nobody's told you that because you haven't told. We haven't asked you and found out, you know, when we do pre-op. It's really important to just make sure that people are able to tell us what's going on in a way that doesn't, that we need to know the information, and but in, they don't feel like feel badly when they've shared it. I understand why you feel that way. If that relative had a concern with a statin, had a liver problem, I can understand why you're talking about it. I'm really glad you brought it to me. Anytime anything like that comes up, please feel free to share. That's what I'm here for. Well, I think we, you know, we, we're talking a lot about the physician angle and trying to meet the patient at a, at a even level and in an equal level. Let's flip it a second and talk about how do we teach or motivate the patient to take more responsibility for themselves and how, you know, because, you know, it's easy to see how you got somewhere and then it's it's really hard to tell someone where they failed. And especially like if they're watching these late night commercials and they're getting all these messages about, you know, this is going to help, this is going to help. And it's almost like they see the potential they have and they want to do better, but mm-hmm. they're just, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, well, how do we rein that in mm-hmm. and say, you are in control, you are responsible, and you have the ability yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's back to motivational interviewing, but is that a component of, is to empower the patient? It is. And I'll just go back to some of the things we talked about before we got on the air. This integrated behavioral health model that we have brought into our department since 2015, when I was fortunate enough to get that grant from the federal government, and we've hired four behavioral health providers and a care manager. And when I believe that I have done as much as I can do with the patient around their four chronic diseases and one acute illness, and I see an a way that the patient is ready to make some change potentially or is needing to make some change, but they don't know how, then I ask them if they would like to have a behavioral health provider help them develop the skills to start down that path. And they say yes. Almost nobody says no. And so at that point, I walk out of the room, I get the behavioral health provider. I do not talk to them outside the room. Mm -hmm. I bring them in the room and I I have had the patient fill out a depression screening and anxiety screening before I do that. 
so that they see the scores when they walk in the room. But then I introduce the patient to the provider. Uh, we call them BHPs, behavioral health providers. And I, in a summary fashion, I tell the BHP what the patient is ready to work on or feels like they need help with. And then that person becomes an extension of my care. I'm, I have a long-term relationship with these patients as a rule when I refer them like this. And then I trade seats with the behavioral health provider and they start to work with the patient on that. Is it smoking cessation? Is it getting their diabetes under better control? Is it working on turning off the t- you know the sleep hygiene things that will help people sleep at night? Because if you can't sleep, the rest of it isn't going to work. If you get chronically sleep deprived, the rest of it, no matter what we say or do with all these yeah. wonderful tools, it's not going to work. So you figure out what the particular um, set of skills and needs are, and then you turn that patient over to the behavioral health provider, and then you and that provider and the patient as a team, work on helping that patient develop some new skills. It might be mindfulness training. It might be cognitive behavioral therapy. It might be working on their substance use. Depending on what the the particular substance is, there might be some additional folks we bring in who are also licensed clinical addiction specialists. So we use that additional set of tools that we've had since 2015, which has been life-changing for our department. Mm -hmm. Uh, We use that a lot to help people when they kind of sort of know they need to make changes or they know they do, but they don't, they feel helpless Mm -hmm. to do it because of all the other things on their plate and they've maybe tried before and failed. So, you know, we say it is hard and we understand it's hard and we're a team and we are going to help you and we're going to teach you how to help yourself if that's what you're ready to do. And that's a pretty successful way to help people slowly start to make the changes and then be able to touch base with the behavioral health provider in between when I would see them back for whatever it is we're working on. Mm -hmm. As you're talking about that model, you know, I I have trouble seeing how that scales and what, you know, I always try to look for solutions. and, And one of the things I see is the need for group sessions for people with similar mm-hmm. afflictions mm-hmm. and how also you get the benefit of some sort of social connection, which you know, I've said it a few times on, on this podcast. I've heard the phrase, you know, the opposite of addiction is social connection mm-hmm. and, and to get people out of their normal environments and into a place where they can see others like themselves and being guided in conversation with instead of multiple providers for one person, you have one provider for multiple yes, patients. Yes. Um, so are you doing any group yes. type so things? So our department, we're fortunate to have some folks who are quite skilled in group medical visits. We have a team of folks for people who are pregnant, which mm-hmm. is wonderful. We have folks for smoking cessation. We have them for uh, diabetes education and just recently with the um, addition of this support from the federal government for this opioid use disorder training, we now have an opioid use disorder group medical visit. Right now we have four chronic diseases. Well, pregnancy, I do not consider chronic disease, but it it, it is a process that mm-hmm. you need a lot of support through, um, especially if you're doing it for the first time. But the other three are for chronic disease management. So that what you say is very powerful that people learn to help each other and hear each other's stories and and that one provider can guide and sometimes just stand back and listen. Mm-hmm. Do you so, see patients responding to that? Yes, yes. yeah. That group process 
works for people who like to be in a group, you mm-hmm. know, for people who don't want to tell people what's going on with them or they're shy or they, for whatever reason, it's not for everybody, but you invite any time that we're trying to start working on something new with a patient and we have a group visit, we offer it. We mm. have little yellow tabs on our monitors in the rooms about which group visits are meeting when and where okay. so that if we think that's a good tool for the patient on a given day, we look up and take a picture of it and send it to the patient or let them take a picture of it so that they know uh, when they whether or not it's a time that they can fit a visit in because those groups meet weekly. Right. Once they meet, they'll usually meet for eight sessions. The centering pregnancy is a, a little bit different, but the uh, chronic disease management is usually eight-week blocks, and then they start off with different a new group of patients. I wrote down this, I'm uh, not exactly sure what aspect, but I wanted to ask you, culturally competent diabetes. Tell me what is encapsulated in that phrase. Well, it goes back to some of the stuff we've already talked about in that Meeting people where they are. You do not tell a person whose community has always thought that big is beautiful. You don't talk to them about their diabetes management the same way you do somebody who grew up thinking you can never be too rich or too thin. I mean, they're the two. So if you, again, if you don't know where people, what people swim around in, their lived experience, you aren't going to be able to effectively help them with their diabetes. There are people, many people in our community, who are descendants of the slaves that are in this area. A lot of the way that people took care of each other down through those generations was to try to get enough to eat. And if you were thin, you were either sick or you were starving, and neither bode well for you or your future or people who attach themselves to you. So there's still, in some areas, depending on the the lore, the generations of how the family came together, what's been handed down, there's mm-hmm. still some of that. I hear people say, I've, I can't lose any more weight. I've lost 20 pounds. And they've gone from 200 to 180. And that is scary for them because weight loss is scary. And sometimes they don't even know where they got that. It's just that that's what they've always heard is that if you lose weight, it's bad. And that is not true for a lot of other people that you talk to. But if you don't know that, you're going to come at that in a real, you know, potentially even harmful Mm -hmm. way. So that's just one example of what I've experienced a lot around here. You go to California and talk to folks with diabetes and you probably won't hear that issue will not come up. Mm-hmm. But there are pockets of communities where big is beautiful and mm-hmm. you can't do a very good job taking care of folks if you don't understand that that's where they live. And they go to a cookout and they're eating, as they call it, rabbit food. And people are going to laugh at them or tell them, you know, like you're going to you're going to fall over, you know, <laughs> eating like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to you got to work with that and in a way that takes some real skill mm-hmm. fortunately i've had dr kirk and i have worked together a lot on those kinds of things we've developed uh, videos for students and residents to watch and we've published a couple of those on med ed portal and it's been very rewarding yeah i could see how given today's prevalence of processed food that would 
compound the the problem was, of, of, of that and so yes. you, you don't even have to eat as much and you're getting more calories and more processed foods and that could exacerbate and um and so that manifests itself in different cultures in different ways but mm-hmm. you need to be appreciative of that that's that's where that person lives and you need to honor that as you start to talk with them about mm-hmm. what whatever health changes they might be willing to make yeah now i've seen feel a little pushback sort of the acceptance and the embracing of you know the term body positive mm-hmm. or something and, and you know there's always the pushback body positive or type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. doesn't care about your body posit- mm-hmm. positivity so it's it's a mindset that's like i'm big and beautiful and your culture supports that but medically that's not a long-term sustainable place to be it isn't that i think the big thing about body positive and big and beautiful is that you are beautiful today. You do not need to be a different way to be beautiful and to love yourself. And that's really important. And that message often gets lost. But if you could see your way to making these few changes, like with exercise, the diabetes would be much more likely to be controlled with diet and exercise Um, or smaller amounts of meds as opposed to insulin, you know, like oral meds as opposed to insulin. So the, the challenge is, especially especially for women, is the body image has just been, you know, just been everything. You, mm-hmm. you are your body image, you know, like, and if you are got some stereotype, you know, then you get to sail down the road. And if you don't have that stereotype, then you work hard to love yourself where you are. Mm-hmm. And we've improved but we've got a long way to go. I was just talking with those little girls in the lead, North Carolina girls lead Saturday morning about that issue of, you know, you are beautiful right now where you are. And do not let anybody tell you differently. When you decide that you want to improve your health, then you that's a good plan. But you're beautiful today and you'll be beautiful until you're ready to do that. And you'll be beautiful if you decide to do that, you know. And compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to yes. anybody else. Yes. Like, you made a decision to make a change that was right for you. Since you've been in practice, tell me about some wins. I mean, I, we hear about a lot of negative numbers, especially in the health of Americans and obesity and diabetes and all these things. To, you know, tell me some good news. Well, I, I guess I have to go back to that the grant that I just got for one thing is that I never felt as if we were able to do a very good job managing anxiety and depression and substance use in our department because we simply did not have the resources there for patients. We we knew what they needed, but we didn't have the time and sometimes we didn't have the expertise to start helping people manage those chronic diseases. And medication has come a long way in terms of managing problems like that, but it is you know, medication is a piece, it's one tool to get this really big task <laughs> taken care of or managed, rather. Not usually cured, but managed. And we have had enormous success in helping people learn how to change behaviors with cognitive behavioral therapy, with mindfulness meditation, with whatever tools that our behavioral health providers have helped them work with things that we would have never gotten them to do going out in the community because so many of the folks we take care of don't really have good have sufficient insurance that would allow them to go and pay 150 dollars a session or even the copay of sometimes 30 or 40 and to an unseen face they just wouldn't do it so this business of getting a lot of this management in the office 
has really let us dig in to behavioral health, to helping people with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use, really dig in in a way that we have never been able to touch because mm-hmm. we just didn't have the time and resources. And I, I'm sure there's lots of others, but that for me, the last few years, just having that, that team has just been night and day and feeling like we are m- making success for people and helping them learn how to help themselves. So are you seeing more or less depression and anxiety and and, and those kind of, we would say, mental health issues? I mean, that can be, I'm sure, related to diet and other you know things going on with their bodies but you know i I, have, I sort of have this sense that and you read about the you know more and more youth are depressed or anxious, anxious and they're you know withdrawing into their devices instead of actually being social they get lost in social media and and it, it, you know do you see any trends good or bad in that area i do think that there are some concerning trends for younger kids like kids and teenagers about how hooked in they are to social media and how much that informs their body image, their sense of well-being. Are they okay? Are they not okay? Who they trust, hooking up with people they shouldn't be hooking up with, doing dangerous things. That is a whole other set of circumstances that I, as a parent, when my kids were young, didn't, you know, it wasn't anywhere on the radar. And I think that has increased the anxiety for parents and caregivers of the children and it's increased the anxiety for kids a lot because there's that you know FOMO thing fear of missing out thing that kids and sometimes even young adults will talk about that if they aren't on the their social media site all the time they're going to miss something and if they miss something then you know it's all over I, I think there is a lot of unnecessary anxiety especially generated out of that whole part of our culture. There are some good things about it, but you have to get kids to it. And the stuff that are really good are not as <laughs> what the kids are as attached to, yeah. attracted to, or kids, I say kids, I mean, children and young teenagers, mm-hmm. especially. I mean, you can go online and find your tribe, but you can also, you know, on the same, you know, the the other side of the coin, you can find a lot of detractors yes. and a lot of yes. haters as well. Yeah. So, I mean, people who are going through certain stages of their life will find people who support them, whether it's a good stage or mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. And then you also get a lot of perhaps uh, exposure to trauma or triggers that will make you question that yeah you can be sitting in your bedroom at night with the lights off and get traumatized that was not true 20 years ago you know exactly and you know that goes back to what when we started about resilience and it it's so easy to be activated behind a keyboard instead of in a group of real live face-to-face people where you can say and do things in the real world right. that you wouldn't say right. behind it. Exactly. You, know, exactly. you wouldn't say unless yeah. you're behind a yeah. keyboard and activated and angry and scared or whatever. So I think there's that piece. And then I think there's the piece that so many people now have a harder time actually supporting their families because they're working more as contractors or working two jobs, two minimum wage jobs. And I know that over the last sort of 10 or 15 years has been a lot of data about that people who are coming along are not going to have as many resources 
for themselves and to pass on to their children as their parents did and potentially even their grandparents, but especially their parents. And that has really shifted because companies are about bottom lines and, you know, all those contract workers are a lot cheaper and all the things that we know. And I think there's a lot more anxiety about people being able to keep a job and have benefits. That has really shifted in the time that I've been in medicine. Like the last 20 years ago, there wasn't so much of that going on. And now there's, it's, it's much more typical. People have to rely on their own resourcefulness to build their yeah. own safety nets yeah. now. Yeah. And lots of older adults are working, not necessarily because they want to. Some of them are, mm-hmm. like me. And some of them are working because they don't have a choice. They will not go, they're not going to eat if they're not doing some sort of part-time work mm-hmm. because their social security is so limited. And that's especially true for women who took care of kids and they took care of their husbands mother and father and they took care of their mother and father and they were out of the workplace for a very long time and they may not have any advanced degree so their numbers their social security dollars on their earned income would be low anyway and you just get these folks who worked their whole lives really hard a lot of them like especially in the surrounding rural areas here where the parents have gone to work and the grandparents have been the caregivers for kids and that model worked for a long time as people moved out of rural areas and moved more into urban areas. But it's, it works, it's worked for everybody, but the people who are left to mm-hmm. fend for themselves when they're in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, and they don't have but six or $800 a month for Social Security. So if they don't find some way to supplement that, it's, it's a tragedy. You know, that gets into the social determinants part a lot. You know, housing, food, insecurity, of course, being poor interpersonal violence, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, lack of education, all those things. What are some of the ways that fewer could wave a magic wand, you know, you could solve some of these things? If I could wave a magic wand, <laughs> that would be a very easy conversation to have, and it it would be done. One of the tools that I've used to help address that issue in the last five years with this grant is we I hired a full-time care manager whose job it is once either I or one of the behavioralists identify that a patient has has an insecurity in one or more of those areas, that we pull her into the team and she starts helping pull together the resources for that patient, uh, both short-term and then helping direct them to more long-term resources to help get them at least into a shelter while she's getting longer-term housing set up, or get them to the SNAP office so they can get their food stamps that they were eligible for, but it takes a lot of organization and -hmm. you have to have a car and you have to have this and you have to have that, or you have to have bus money, or you have to have time to actually take off your minimum wage job to actually go down and do that. And you wait all morning and then you've lost the, you know, the list Mm -hmm. goes on and on. So she can help streamline both connect people to the resources to help start to make those insecurities less powerful for them as well as help to build the bridges to more long-term mm-hmm. uh, turning those things around i will just tell you we really looked at recently looked at the data in our department for the patients that we've enrolled in this research project and at our site so these are people that either have a diagnosis of depression or anxiety who we have worked with in our with our behavioral health providers, and they've agreed to let us look at their data before and after. Not every single person said yes. Most people did. 
So we, we have about 2,500 people who said yes um, that we're now tracking. The magic <laughs> wand, it, that, that's an easy question, but having person who can actually help you do that, even though you know that sometimes you do that over the years, I was doing it after five, I was doing it after seven, I was doing it on Saturdays and Sundays. You know, that's what we did because we didn't have an, the, the tools. My magic wand is my care manager in that way because she does help connect people to those resources. And we looked at what the people in family medicine uh, look like in terms of one or more of those insecure areas mm-hmm. versus the people at um, Southside United Health Centers. And on our site, if they were had the diagnosis of depression or anxiety, they had a 30% likelihood of having at least one of those. Mm-hmm. And at the Southside site, at least if they had at least one, it was they were 40% likely to have at least one of those if they had a diagnosis of anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. So, you know, teasing that apart, pulling it apart, you really can't. Yeah. But you can just see that they really go hand in hand. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very potent. It's very well, and in, in while you're talking about that, uh, about connecting to resources, I, th- I think, you know, it's like the global food uh, issue is not a question of quantity. It's a question of distribution. And I think... Forsyth County, there's so many organizations that are helping the community. And we still have an abysmal record where one in five children go to bed hungry at night, despite Northwest North Carolina's, the Second Harvest Food Bank, being one of the model food banks in the country. We still, with all the progress we've made, that's still the number. One in five. One in five. It's 20 to 25 percent, depending on which year you're looking at. And it's, it's just stunning you know that we've got a food bank that's at really really you know has its mm-hmm. ducks in a row they're yeah. amazing folks Clyde Fitzgerald who died th- this year unfortunately turned it over to Eric Afton he's just doing a fantastic job and they are rolling out all kinds of wonderful things and talking especially about how do you get the right food to the right people which is a huge issue my daughter is with Feeding America. She's a director for Feeding America in Chicago. And one of the things that they're about to roll out is a, the food equivalent of electronic health record. And we're, we're aiming to tie a food prescription so that their EMR, EHR, will talk to our EHR about that person's renal disease or diabetes. And so that person would take a, a food prescription to the food pantry to get much more appropriate <laughs> Yeah, they, they will not pick up a case of Pepsi's. They will pick up some healthy yeah, some fruits and red vegetables. Kidney beans yes, and, yes, yeah, yes. They, they, so there's there's things like that and that are starting to roll out. I mean, there's some huge amounts of dollars are rolling into the how do you get the food to the people? The food is we have enough food, like you said. There are companies who are giving up two million dollars a year to Feeding America just to transport excess food from one place to another for feeding America. Mm-hmm. That's their charitable contribution. Um, so it's not as if people aren't trying and working on it. And there's a lot of folks devoted, but it is a huge problem in a country our size. Well, I've, I've seen, you know, along with the rise of the little free libraries for books and stuff, I've seen a lot of like food pantry yes. things yeah. prop up around. Yeah. Like um, on college campuses, there are a lot of hungry students Yeah, and they're, it's embarrassing to have to let somebody know that. So there's been that kind of outreach through student health and other uh, resources on campuses to help students 
have access to some basic food. Oh yeah, I've been a poor, sleeping, I was a poor college student. Yeah, me too. My share of ramen yeah. and peanut butter. Yeah. So. While they were sleeping in their car, they, they at least can have an adequate number of calories uh, or close to it. Well, again, I think you know having the community resources that we have and people working on this issue, I think you know we're making progress. I I I don't like to see all the pessimism around some of these issues and the focus on immutable factors instead focus on the things that all the community all the good things that are happening the communities to get people the help they need and you know a lot of times it is hard for those people who need care and need resources to put all the puzzle pieces together because they're dealing with an acute problem of they don't have transportation or they're getting beat up if they go home or 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 whatever it is so it's that's a tough thing to solve but i think we're making a lot of progress we are making a lot of progress and i'm glad you said that because it's easy to get down dug into the problems um and just what our immediate solutions are our efforts to start turning some things around for just the folks that we take care of but you know uh, bill gates and some other folks who do a wonderful writing and research are very good at setting the stage for the world is in better shape in terms of who has enough food how many people die their first year of life, those kinds of data. It is great to listen to them because you can go, okay, all this work is not for naught. Mm -hmm. This work, it's counting. It just is a big task when there are 6.7 billion people on the planet. Is that right? Or 7.7 billion people on the planet. But if you listen to their data, it's very encouraging. I love listening to, I mean, humanprogress.org is a site mm-hmm. I look at and Steven Pinker. And, yeah, exactly. And, He's the other person I was going to mention. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and people like to focus on the negative, but yeah, it's, it's not improving as fast for certain cohorts yeah. and stuff. And well, yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's as a whole, the human race is, is progressing right. into places. I mean, we, we are, you know, civilization is at better now right. today, right. right now than it's ever, ever been. Ever been. And then, you know, I've, gotten in some discussions recently you know there's this whole climate strike and everybody's getting alarmist about everything and you know people are talking about oh we have to limit population growth and stuff and it's like well you know if we look at human history we've always looked for the next place to go you know what you can call it colonization i know that's got a negative connotation in in some communities for sure rightly so but it's also like we got to look to the stars, you know, you got people like Elon Musk and that are saying, Hey, you know, we got to find earth 2.0. We got to go out and see Mm -hmm. how to mine asteroids Mm -hmm. and how to, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is. But Mm -hmm. it's like the whole zero population growth conversation. That's where it gets into ethical things. Those are conversations. That's work for China, right? Right. Well, and they're, they're going to be struggling for three generations because of that policy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's also, you know, it's the outlook you take It's like more people, means that we have more brain power, that we have more capabilities mm-hmm. to do things. More geniuses. More geniuses. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 you know, I bristle at when people get alarmist and say, we got to stop having babies and we've got to stop doing this and stop doing that. It's like, well, you know, who get who gets to decide who has to stop? You know, right. it's, it's, does the ruling class? Well, yeah. they're right. you know, back to Animal Farm. Yes, you know, get exactly. Off. But but I, I am an optimist, and I, I read some things because we we are talking about 
social determinants and people get into breaking uh, statistics down into by demographics um, is a big one. And one of the things I saw today was from uh, in African-Americans over 65, the mortality rate has dropped 29 percent from cancer in the last 15 years. 31% 31% diabetes, 43% decrease in heart disease. So, I mean, that's great news. It is great news. And the uh, life expectancy is going down in white people because of depression, suicide, and substance use. So, the fir- For the first time in how many decades is the life expectancy going down? So right. the areas where we've put a lot of resources, like the folks you just mentioned, that particular demographic, we, are, we have seen some progress. Mm-hmm. We have seen some remarkable progress and with still lots of work to do but oh sure it's it says that it's possible yeah and so how do you how do we turn around this suicide depression substance use mm. business that we're in now for all the like communities that lost their mining and lost their coal mines and lost their right. manufacturing all that all those people who basically ended up yeah. doing drugs and Earlier, you mentioned the the move from rural areas to the more populated areas, and with that became it will came a loss of identity and a loss mm-hmm. of uh, values, mm-hmm. a loss of purpose, mm-hmm. a loss mm-hmm. of me. I mean, working in and the tobacco fields and the connectedness, the social connectedness that you have in rural areas if you grow up in an extended family. Right, like right, and I'm not you know saying we all need to go pick tobacco or anything, but but good. But, I'm glad. <laughs> glad you're not saying that. <laughs> but but I, I i do think we've lost the hands-on the connection with the right, soil right you know and that can be metaphorical as well mm-hmm, but exactly. just we we've we've lost some connection with our earth and that's why it's people think it's in the the state it's in and declining um I, I i i do know we need to change a lot of our behaviors as far as industry and development and stuff too but i also think that somehow we need to get people's bare feet on the ground and hands in the soil. Mm-hmm. Very powerful. Yeah. And, and that, you know, the term grounded, Yes, you know, yes, is sir. quite literal. Yes. I heard about some, uh, I, I don't know if old folks' homes are pejorative, but, you know, it was a rest, long-term, long-term care long-term facility. facility. <laughs> and they had brought, they had made it a farm. So they had animals and they gave people tasks. And all of a sudden, that's, depression and anxiety yes, decreased and, that's, and that's, life yeah. expectancy increased. Huge. Just Absolutely huge. Just because they had a purpose yep. and not sitting yep. around watching. Yeah. And then you get some kids to come in there, and then it gets even better mm-hmm. when you get the older generation with the babies, with the young ones, yeah. um, that a lot of times the young kids don't have parents and uh, grandparents that are available because, again, they've come to an urban area. And so you get in the long-term care facilities, you get the gardening going, and you get the kids coming in. Everybody wins. Yeah. You know, everybody is smiling when that when those relationships can be formed. Yeah. And they're doing that on college campuses, putting long term care facilities on college campuses so that these people who are a lot of times, on co- you know, when you're in college and you're away from home for the first time and you uh, maybe do have limited resources, you are really feeling socially isolated and you don't have that connectedness. And these older adults are eager to figure out, you know, mm-hmm. what's going on in the world today from your perspective, you know, that really creates some powerful well-being for everybody. Right. And I, I think the more community spaces we create mm-hmm. where people meet yeah. and Rather do things isolate, together. Yeah. yeah, this isolation of kids go here and teenagers go here and yeah. and people who are 
60 and older need to isolate themselves. I mean, that is just crazy making. You yeah. know, we need the cross-generational stuff is incredibly, incredibly important for our well-being. It's just crazy how we've got done that thing. Well, it, it seems like in our culture um, here in America that we we haven't placed the value on our elders as many oh, cultures. Horrific. Our ageism is the worst ism. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> so I felt like the ageism was the only ism that was tolerated explicitly mm-hmm. like you you had to mind your p's and q's around sexism and racism and all the other isms but we really i don't think we've made the progress with ageism that we did at least for a while and some of the other ways that people mm-hmm. get looked uh, askance uh, upon them. but the ageism stuff still is a matter of like it's okay and it's funny like, what are you teaching these people, mm-hmm. you know, that it's bad to get old rather than die early? Like, you know, right. like, what's wrong with getting older? Because if you don't, then you don't get to do the whole lifespan. You don't get to sit and look and, you know, look and help and support and, you know, count yeah. your blessings. I mean, that, that's crazy making. Yeah. I mean, every at every age, we have something to offer our community at every age. We have a, a perspective. We have particular gifts and experiences. And that we take two and three generations of older adults and just act as if they just, you know, we just can't be bothered is just insane. Yeah. It really is. Well, it is. I mean, you know, and we, we use the word American culture and it's like, well, what is our shared experience? It's, it's, I don't know what it is really. I mean, for you, uh, you could probably relate to a lot of people who grew up on tobacco farms, you know, the, the rural America, hard work. And and it taught you early on that you didn't want to do that Mm -hmm. the rest of your life. But today's kid, I mean, my kids, they need something to occupy them and they don't, you know, I, I started working, when I was 12 and, and, um, there's just not those same opportunities. I don't think in these urban, you know, more metropolitan places that we live in, they we just don't have the outlets mm-hmm. for them to have a shared mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. of, of hauling hay in the summertime right. or something right. or, you know, whatever it is in healthcare, it brings out a lot of the best in people, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone's, leading with kindness but i don't see the other isms as much as we're told they exist Mm -hmm. so i could be just the internal optimist in that regard but well it also depends on how you meet people because if you meet people with kindness in general you're going to be treated in kind Mm -hmm. and that isn't how everybody goes out into the world true (laughs) true i mean if you get up if you have cranky people or depressed people or anxious people or you know people with personality disorders i mean those are real too they don't meet people with kindness so it it's Mm -hmm. it's an explosive thing you know or things that don't go well mm-hmm. i didn't get the attention i needed they didn't pay attention to me you know if you if you're depressed and can't articulate or you're so anxious that you're hyperventilating and you just need to get out of the store and you're just trying to get out of the grocery store line you're probably not going to have a nice little chit chat with the with the person that is checking you out mm-hmm. and saying something nice about their t-shirt or whatever it is they're wearing mm-hmm. so that they know that you actually looked at them. Mm-hmm. Well, I think <laughs> eye contact and smiles are, are so contagious, you know, and, and you can tell people like just walking through everyday life. Um, it, 
you can t- you can see people who are struggling with something when they won't make eye contact with you, you know. And I'm not trying to get anybody's attention, but sometimes when you're the only two people they're in furtive. the hallway, yeah. they're furtive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you just say, hey, you and, know. and the eyes are in the you know the windows into the soul. Right. If, if you don't want somebody to look into your soul right now, you're not going to do this. Yeah, you know, that like we're doing right now. Exactly. Exactly. So what, what uh, aside from having the magic wand, what, what gives you the most hope? What gets you out of bed in the morning to, to continue on this grant you have? And, you, you know, you, you lit up when you said when you were talking about it and, and you're excited and you, you said you wouldn't still be working if it wasn't for these things you're working on now. My so. colleagues and my colleagues, an incredible chair of our department who who has this wonderful philosophy about don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Mm-hmm. And he's always just there to have your back if you've got an idea you want to try. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to be full blown. He's like, go for it. See, you know, see what happens. Let me know what I can do to help. And you sit down and have a conversation with him, how you know, like an annual review or something like that. And the first thing he wants to know is, Are you happy? And and if he's if you say yes, then he's good. And mm-hmm. if you say all but, and he'll say, Well, what's going on there? What can mm-hmm. I do? And he'll say, my job is to get the obstacles out of the way. Your job is to get the grant and get this thing going. And then if there, if you hit a roadblock, my job is to pull the boulder out of the way. Just let me know. And and he does. And he doesn't seem to forget anything. Mm-hmm. And so he just leads with kindness, wit, warmth. And he's brilliant. So, it you know, it's a great combination of attributes that this man has and he just is in a great place to help us and and then we have this marvelous faculty a lot of whom we've trained ourselves they've mm-hmm. been our residents and they've come back and joined the faculty so the the culture of being kind mm-hmm. and and supportive of one another and being kind to your learners and being kind to your patients you know like lead with kindness is not everywhere as much as we would want it to be but it's very present in our department well, I think it is healthcare. So, I mean, we, yeah. you know, there is an assumption that yeah. you're doing it because yeah. you want to yeah. be kind to society yeah. and help, yeah. help and people. Yeah, and then just, yeah, getting this grant so that we could actually get the resources into the department that we needed to do the work we know we needed to do mm-hmm. and we weren't able to do. It was a constant 2 a.m. kind of, I know, I did not. So you're calling that patient at 6 to make sure that they really did go over to Old Vineyard or they really did agree to mm-hmm. reach out to their friend to get a plan in place if they mm-hmm. are struggling more. Um, just feeling like you've got that extra set of hands and that the minds who are trained to do the evidence-based work mm-hmm. to help people develop or, or get over some of the worst parts of their lives um, and learn how to manage better. I mean, most of us did not learn that stuff when we were growing up. And these people who are walking around with – uh, adverse childhood experience scores of five or greater, and there's a lot of them in mm-hmm. the world, that there are people who need to have some a safe place to learn how to become resilient. You don't, you're not very resilient when you've had five bad childhood mm-hmm. experiences. And so if you have that group of people, and we have five people plus a nurse navigator that we did not have as well, you you can do your work and feel really fulfilled by it and feel like you're most of the time with most people, you're meeting their needs and you can do it in a way that you feel like you have pretty decent work-life balance mm-hmm. most of the time. And when you don't have that group, 
if you don't have that team, you don't feel that way. I have had a lot of times in my career where I was working so hard because I knew what people needed and I, I knew I couldn't do it all, but I was going to do everything I could. And now I have somebody to, you know, I can pass the, pass the ball mm-hmm. and then they'll pass it back to me and then I can pass it back over to this other person. And it's a whole different, it's a whole, di- it's a sea change. And it's marvelous. Well, I think if that model could translate into the community on the patient side mm-hmm. where people weren't afraid to ask for help, mm-hmm. weren't afraid to ask mm-hmm. for a ride here, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's that's what I see a lot of people. And I'm one of them. I was reluctant to ask for help mm-hmm. because I see it as some sort of sign of weakness, mm-hmm. you know, and I've gotten over that mm-hmm. a lot. And I think I think uh, from from that perspective, it's it's like uh, we can build our own teams, mm-hmm. let's say, yeah. from from a patient yes. perspective. Yes. So yes. good stuff. I like I like that phrase. Uh, don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Oh, he and I use it all the time when we're trying to get a new project started mm-hmm. and we are confronted with folks who want it to be perfect. And mm-hmm. that is not the way new clinical innovations work. <laughs> yeah, paralysis by analysis. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so um, it's very nice when the philosophies fit. You know, you feel like you really do have that person. He does have our backs yeah that's and, great yeah he's really concerned about us as human beings and he's our families and he never missed forgets anybody's name any kids names or anything i don't know how he does it but you know i'm very glad he's where he is i'm gonna ask you that question he he asked you are you happy i'm very happy i'm very <laughs> grateful i have a huge amount of gratitude i wake up every morning with that in mind uh that i there have been so many rough patches in my life and that I've been able to get to this point. And, and as I think I'm healthy. As far as I know, I'm healthy. I've got people who love me, and I've got enough material resources. And I, I just feel very, very grateful for the work I have and the connections I have to people. And I just... I am very grateful. I am very, very grateful. Well, good. Well, a shout out to Julie Kirk for, for recommending yeah. you come on the podcast. And it was a pleasure, Dr. Gail Marion. We'll have you back again sometime. Okay. We'll talk about all the progress you're okay. making. Okay. Thank you.